Nothing. Nothing but. Nothing but net. Net, net, net. Welcome to Nothing But Net, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. Before we get into the meat of today's show, let's recap on why there's so much interest and buzz around net, net, net properties. Triple net properties are commercial real estate investments where the tenants, usually brand name corporations, pay you rent every month. Can you say mailbox money? In addition, they pay the real estate taxes, insurance, and maintenance for the property. No toilets, termites, or taxes. What's not to like? You can remember what net, 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 or triple net stands for by using TIM, Taxes, Insurance, and Maintenance. With triple net properties, there's lower risk income and cash flow because rents are guaranteed by strong credit tenants. Preservation of wealth because rent increases and property appreciation are bulwarks against inflation and a great store of value. Tax efficiency. The government wants investment in commercial real estate, so they provide inducements through depreciation and deductions which shelter income from taxation. Tax deferral, which gives potential for infinite tax deferral with 1031 exchanges, which are very popular in the triple net space. Triple net properties are a tangible asset, and as Mark Twain once said, buy land, they ain't making any more of it. Hello and welcome back to the Nothing But Net podcast, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. I'm your host, Adam Carswell, joined by our co-host, Michael Flight, today, and we have another action-packed episode ready to go for you guys, and a really special guest today, someone who we've built a relationship with over the years, so excited to, to finally have him here on the show. I'm going to hand it over to you, though, Michael, to do the uh, introductory introduction. Thank you very much, Adam. Really appreciate that. Is one of my employees once said, I seem to collect people, and this is one of the, the best finds I've, I've ever had in my life. He is Jason Ricks, and Jason is the COO of Liberty Fund, and he's an expert on triple net leasing. He's an expert on due diligence. He's an expert on rehabbing things. And this dude, this man, has completed (laughs) more than 1,000 leases in his career. So if you're looking for somebody that knows his stuff, they talk about having 10,000 hours. I think he's got his 10,000 hours of leases in. Love it. And a lot of gray hair too, Michael. He's catching up to Michael, I think. Oh, come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Don't worry. I'll be there soon. All right, guys. Some more uh, background on Jason, though. Jason Ricks is a native Texan professional real estate investor and certified commercial investment member. That's the CCIM designation. Jason's background is in retail leasing and asset management, and they make him an invaluable member of our team at Liberty Real Estate Fund, where he develops strategies to unlock the values of properties. Jason also has extensive experience and familiarity with South and Southwestern U.S. markets. Jason's most recent experience is with Morgan Stanley as the Vice President for Retail Asset Management, where he established and has led the mixed-use retail asset management team, working on premier properties worth hundreds of millions across the country. Prior to that, he served as an asset manager for BH Properties, where he oversaw a 2.2 million square foot value-add retail portfolio throughout Texas and Oklahoma. Jason broke into the commercial real estate business as a shopping center broker for Tarantino Properties. He received a bachelor's in science and business management from Oklahoma State University, where he was also a team captain for the Oklahoma State football team, the Cowboys. 
Jason is an active member of the International Council of Shopping Centers, and most recently, he was featured in the number one Amazon best-selling book, Desire, Discipline, and Determination. So ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Jason Ricks. Jason, we'll flip it over to you here in a moment just to, to say hi, and then also to follow up with that introduction of yourself, let us know what a CE, or sorry, a COO does. Uh, thanks, guys, for having me on. A pleasure. Great intro there. That's uh, a lot to unpack, but uh, fantastic. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Being a COO for Liberty Fund, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's kind of like being a coach of a sports team. So you got to wear a lot of different hats. You're coordinating a lot of different efforts simultaneously and working with uh, various different uh, groups to make sure that the vision and the strategy is met. And uh, very excited to be a part of the team. We've got a we got a great team of folks, and obviously Michael, who's the host of the podcast, has been instrumental in creating that strategy. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to hearing a lot more about it, Adam. What what are we talking about on this week's podcast? The topic of this episode is due diligence and lease analysis. And, you know, I can validate going back and forth with Jason over the past few years now. Ever since you know, Michael, you collected me as Jason referenced and brought me onto the team. These have definitely been areas where, you know, when I needed help, you would connect me with Jason, have him go through um, a lot of what we're going to get into today. So that's what we're getting in, into today is uh, due diligence, lease analysis. And I know Jason has some some cool takeaways prepared for us as well. Yeah. So why don't we get right into it? Due diligence would normally happen once we got the property under contract. The key thing with due diligence is there's normally a, uh, a short time window. So you got to get things done as quickly as possible. So you've got to arrange and make sure that all your ducks are in a row. You've got to make sure that you've got your LLC agreements uh, getting done. You're going to get your uh, title and your survey done, and you're going to confirm that the, the zoning is correct. You're going to also take a look at the, the tenant leases, which we'll get into in a little bit. You're going to make sure that you get accurate financial information. What we normally ask for is at least three years of financial information so that we can uh, review that. If they are getting any utility bills, we, we ask for that, whether it's electric, gas, and water. Since we're working with triple net properties, most of the time the tenant pays for all that. In certain situations, the landlord is responsible for paying for some of those bills and then they build them back to the tenant. You want to just verify all the expenses on the property and you want to verify that the real estate taxes were paid. Everything else has been paid and that, that there's no outstanding liens on the property, uh, which also comes up in a title search. We shouldn't have any service contracts, but if there are service contracts, you're going to want to request those. If there are, you're going to want to see those. The service contracts could be anything from landscaping, mowing the lawn, to maintaining sprinklers, to um, the northern areas, uh, snow, snow plowing. A, a big thing is parking lot sweeping, portering, and cleaning. And you're going to make sure that if it is a, a service contract, that they're terminable uh, within a reasonable period of time. Because if it's a service contract with a five-year commitment, we've seen them sometimes where somebody's brother-in-law is the service provider. So right before they put the market, the property on the market, they sign a five-year 
non-cancelable uh, contract with their brother-in-law or something. And so that that ends up being a, a negotiation. It's like, well, if you want your brother-in-law paid, we're, we're just going to have to make sure that we get a discount on the property. Uh, you're going to want to review and make sure that there's no litigation involving the property or involving the tenant, like somebody slipped and f- fell inside the property. So that, that'll come up. You're going to want to just check the insurance. Again, the tenant is supposed to be paying all the insurance, but the tenant is also required to send you a certificate of insurance. You're going to want to make sure that the certificate of insurance is good, that it's covering all the required things that are covered in the um, the lease that they're supposed to be insuring. You're also going to want to, once you take over the property, and we'll get into this in the property management section, is get your company named as an additional insured. We look and see if there's personal property, but as we're talking about net lease properties, there's usually no personal property. I wouldn't bother with that, but you should at least have it on your checklist to to make sure that there is no personal property. And then the, the next thing is, is that you're going to want to go out and do a physical inspection. And Jason and I with Liberty Fund, we also engage people to to do a, a physical property inspection report. But we can get into a little bit about physical property inspection with Jason. So Jason, you've reviewed quite a few properties over the years. So why don't you give us a little bit, when, when you go into a property, what do you look for uh, on your inspection? First thing, I, I really want to focus on the exterior first. So when we do a physical site inspection, I want to understand the site and the competitiveness of that site within the marketplace. A few things that we can look at. Where, where are we at from an access ability standpoint and visibility standpoint of that particular building? Is it on a major thoroughfare? Is it on a highway? Uh, how do we get access into the actual property? What's the parking facility like? Is it easy to get in and out of? Or what's the speed limit approaching the property? Is it on a hard corner lit intersection, right? Is there a stoplight there that makes it a little bit safer? Is there a turn lane getting into this space? So a lot of those little items like that The other thing that's critical that Michael and I, we always talk about is visibility. So for these single tenant net lease properties, one of the big things is their brand awareness within the market. It almost is essentially their signage. is almost like a billboard that creates recognition for a lot of these tenants. So it's important that you have unobstructed views of the signage. I can't tell you how many times, Michael, you and I have come across this where a site would look really exciting on paper. Oh man, this deal makes sense. Good tenant. And then you realize that you have an overpass directly above the property, shielding it from people actually driving by and seeing the property itself or the, or the signage the tenant has, which puts it at a competitive disadvantage. So those are, those are some of the key critical exterior things that I look at on the physical site. Depending on the lease structure, which we'll get into here in a second, if the tenant is wholly responsible for all the maintenance, I'll, I'll come at it from a little bit of a different lens. If the landlord is responsible for certain elements, of the property. Those are the things I'm really going to dig in on. So that could be the parking field and structure. Well, obviously you want to do some soil testing, potentially uh, look at the foundation, roof damage. What's the roof like? I also really want to get a firm understanding of the space itself. I think this is one of the secrets right here. Go in there, tour the facility, get to meet the manager, see if the lights are on working or they have stained ceiling tiles. What's the condition of the restrooms? Are the shelves stocked? All of these things can give you an indication because ultimately at the end of the day, the success of that tenant 
is going to be the success for the investors or the landlord in this case. So if you have a really poor performing store, it's probably not going to get a ton of attention. So that's kind of one of those key critical things that I'll keep an eye on is how are they maintaining and managing the site? Particularly when you have landlord responsibilities, like I mentioned earlier, those are the things you really have to dial in on and um, get to meet the staff locally. And if you're a part of a shopping center, this is really critical. Get to know the shopping center. Who owns it back there? Uh, are there cross access agreements? Is there shared parking agreements? Michael brought up a really good point earlier about zoning. I, in my career, have had multiple issues with zoning. So municipalities can change zoning or they can encourage uh, different zoning changes in the future that could restrict your ability to remodel that space for a particular tenant down the road. So all of those things become really vital. And we have very extensive physical inspection checklists uh, with scoring mechanisms. And we really try to keep as much data as possible. I think that's really what separates us is this idea around data. We collect so many data points so we, we can really look across the country and see, okay, if you have X amount of traffic count, if you have X amount of high-end quality anchor tenants behind you, maybe a, like a Walmart or something like that, it can attribute to success for that individual store, uh, as well as demographic reports and what's driving that, uh, that market demand. So those are just a few. We could probably go through a, a litany more, Michael, but those are probably some of the key highlights. Yeah, I just want to point out, we do invest in properties that are on out parcels of shopping centers sometimes. And so the, the out parcel is separately owned from the shopping center. And Jason brought up a really good point of reciprocal easement agreements or uh, reciprocal access agreements so that if somebody has to drive through a parking lot to get to the store that you're buying, you want to make sure that the owner of the, the shopping center or the property behind you cannot change that and, and lock you out and basically block you, the, the tenant, which is is you own the property and the tenant from you know getting any customers in there. And the other thing, Jason brought up a, a really good point about having quality tenants behind you, because if the store is part of a shopping center, you want to make sure that the tenants in the shopping center are contributing to the sales volume of the store or the medical service or automotive service or any type of thing out in the front. And so if you've got like junk stores or if you've got some sketchy tenants in the back and, and we have had some, yeah. we, we've looked at some properties where they do have some sketchy tenants, uh, it's going to drive away customers. And especially if like, for example, if you have out in the front, a drugstore or pharmacy, and then behind it, you've got this nightclub you know, it might be a turnoff to, to certain people that, you know, some funky stuff going on in the middle of the night. And, you know, I don't really necessarily want to go to that pharmacy because I might get hassled by, by drunks in the, the parking lot or something. So that's the type of things that you want to, to keep in mind. And the other thing on the physical property inspection, if you're getting financing, you're going to be required to get at least a phase one environmental inspection. I would recommend it just as a, a course of doing business and covering yourself because there's huge environmental liabilities. Some of those li environmental liabilities will be personal environmental liabilities if you're found to have created the situation. You're just going to always want to protect yourself with getting a phase one as well as the, the survey title search and, and some of the other things. Yes, and for everyone tuned in right now too, you guys can uh, go back and check out the location episode as well as a cross-reference. We touched on um, a handful of topics that were 
rehashing here today and just taking a different look, a different angle approach. Thank you, Jason, for sharing that. And, um, you know, what caught my attention too is something as simple as, you know, are, I think you mentioned, are the shelves stocked? Paying attention to like the little details like that signage, I know is something that can be overlooked, but can make a much larger impact than you would think too. So yeah, it's helpful to hear these things. Yeah. All those little details add up. They really do. And Michael, I know you've been in some really interesting markets, but you kind of see these common themes and threads that you can kind of pull on uh, if the stores aren't operating the way they should be, which uh, would give me pause as as an investor for uh, if we were to potentially sell that to another investor. So it's just little things to keep an eye out on. Right. And some of the things like it also works in service along with retail. And we're mainly focused on, on retail and service businesses. But if you're investing in, let's say, an office building, you want to make sure that the tenant is maintaining the office building and you want to make sure that it's clean and everything else is happening because that's going to be a reflection on on how the tenant's treating their employees and how long they might be in business. Uh, And it's the same thing with with an industrial facility. If somebody's manufacturing, you're going to want to make sure that, you know, there's not all kinds of like dangerous stuff just laying around in the yard and that type of thing. You're going to want to make sure that they, they've got a, an excellent operation. And if they're maintaining, you know, in, in doing a, a warehouse or a, a shipping facility or um, that type of thing, it, it's the same thing. You want to just make sure that the tenant is on their game and operating because if it's the little things like that, which give you a, a key into what the tenant is doing, and then one additional thing on, on a retail store, Jason really brought up a great point. Uh, you want to make sure that the store shelves are stocked because if it's a tenant where they don't have a bunch of stock or inventory on the shelves, it means that they're you know not doing the sales volume there. And so if the tenant is not reporting sales, it's a good indicator that the tenant is not doing fantastic there. And then just one additional thing as part of, and it could go with physical, but we normally will go into the local municipality and just check and see if all the licenses and everything else are correct. And that's, you know, we want to make sure that there's nothing out of code uh, with the property as well. So Adam, why don't we talk, get into Jason's specialty, which is uh, understanding leases. And we'll have him walk us through because the biggest part of a net lease property is the legal instrument called the lease. And so if the lease is not written correctly, it could completely damage the value of your property. So Jason, why don't we get into a little bit about that and you know, to start off with, why don't you tell us what the difference between some of the the net and the net net and all the rest of that is and how it would affect the value? Yeah, great. I've created a list here for us guys, 10 important lease clauses for single tenant net leases. Over my career, you know, these come up time and time again. And and the reason why I wanted to focus on these specifically is these drive a lot of the value. So these were important to me, but Michael touched on uh, my number one key critical and one, which is understanding what type of lease structure you have. So typically in this space, you're going to have what's called a triple net lease or NNN or a double net lease, which is just NN. The best way to to remember this, uh, Michael's got a really good acronym, which is TIM, which is taxes, insurance, and maintenance. And those three items right there make up the triple net. Typically when you hear a double net, 
one of those is going to be left out. So what we usually see when we're, we're finding properties is they're either a triple net or a double net. Double net may require certain maintenance obligations on behalf of the landlord. Common examples for these are going to be the roof, maybe the foundation, maybe a little bit of HVAC, landscaping, and parking lot. Now, they vary lease to lease, but when you have those, it's important that you keep a reserve over time. So if you buy a property that's got a 20-year-old roof and the landlord's responsible for replacing, typically what you're going to see is that devaluation whenever you purchase the property or if you were to sell it. You're going to get a, a higher cap rate on the exit price. So it's really, really important that you understand that nuance. Michael and I try to go after as many pure triple net leases as possible, but because of the true passive nature uh, of that lease structure, those are in higher demand, thus probably increasing the value of the property, which lowers the capitalization rate or the cap rate. So it's really, really important to, to get a firm grasp on that. And that's one of the key components when you're looking at single tenant net lease properties. The second item, which is really important, is understanding who is signing the lease. I can't tell you how many times I've come across this in my career where people just assume typically what we find is the entity that's signing the lease on behalf of the tenant is going to be a standalone LLC. That means it's not really tied to anything. For example, a dollar store or CVS may have one location where I live in Austin, Texas under a, a pure standalone single entity. What's more important is understanding what's backing that entity. And usually that's in the form of some type of guarantee. And the guarantee is critical because it's either going to be probably backed by a corporate entity, which in the case of Walgreens is, you know, absolutely phenomenal credit, great credit. Sometimes with different types of tenants, it could be under a franchisee. Now, this is where it gets really important and nuanced. Typically, when we see like a really recognizable brand, like, a, like let's say like an Orange Theory Fitness that a lot of people are familiar with, those are owned by franchisees. So they're, they're not a part of the corporate entity. Uh, they feed off of it and you buy into that franchisee. Uh, essentially, that underlying credit of that individual and the units that he controls is really what's backing the guarantee. Sometimes those can be really high net worth individuals, or it could be just Joe Schmo with you know a couple dollars in his pocket. So it's really important to understand the underlying value there because that's critical to really creating the value. So we try to go after as many corporate parent credit company tenants, but at the same time, a lot of what we do sometimes ends up with franchisees or just individuals that are guaranteeing the lease uh, on behalf of the entity signing. So those yeah. are those are really key critical components there. Yeah, and I, I want to stress that those are such good points there. It's phenomenal. For example, if you were investing in a subway, uh, subway doesn't own any of its own locations. It's all franchise. And so you could be getting, a, and I think you can buy a subway. I, I know they, they weren't that expensive. Let's say it, it was in the past like $150,000. That could be the tenant's complete and sole. That's all his assets. It's that $150,000 that he invested in that particular subway franchisee. You would be in trouble because the key thing is you want to make sure that they have reserves to pay the rent, to make a go of it and be a successful business. And then there's one other particular thing that I want to point out, and I've seen it done with a lot of national tenants, is you will be negotiating with a national tenant. And then at the time that the lease comes to sign or a little bit before that, they say, 
well, this is the vision that's going to be signing off on it. You say, well, what is this? And they're like, well, this is our real estate division. And basically what they do is they put all their leases into one company. So basically there's no assets in the company. It's just a bunch of liabilities. So you need to be careful. You need to review it. You need to make sure that, you know, for example, if you were looking at a McDonald's and it says it's a McDonald's corporation lease, you want to make sure that it is guaranteed by the publicly traded McDonald's corporation. So thank you very much for those points, Jason. Yeah, no, absolutely. And since we're talking about uh, worst case scenario, and I am the uh, the doomkeeper over here for the Liberty Fund, known as the negative Nancy, <laughs> I, I want to get into uh, the default provision. So let's say worst case scenario, right? We've got a deal, we've got a tenant in there. Let's say it's a franchisee. Well, what happens if they default on payment or they don't maintain their obligations in the lease? You have to go into what's called the, the uh, default provisions. And these are pretty lengthy. And what's, what's interesting in this world that we're in, a lot of times you'll have the lease on what's called the tenant's master lease form, which is going to benefit the tenant more so than what would be typically seen, which is a landlord master lease form. So let's say they, de- they default on a payment. Well, how does that get worked out? And then it goes back to what Michael was just saying, which is, you know, what are the underlying assets that we could potentially go after in the event we needed to sue them? Again, these are all worst case scenarios, but you want to go into this with your eyes wide open. So understanding the default provisions uh, and what are the obligations there, not only if the tenant defaults, but if the landlord defaults. I can tell you on a handful of occasions, there's been really onerous language that favors the tenant where I've gotten in trouble as a landlord and we've had significant issues. Uh, let's say we did not uh, maintain our obligations or give them a certain period of notice for some other kind of major repair or something else going on. We've been in trouble and that opens up the can of worms, potentially allowing the tenant to either penalize us with uh, rental obligations that are going to be reduced or potentially terminating the lease, which has happened to me a few times. So it's really important to understand the default provisions. In all of these, the entity, the lease structure, the default, all of these kind of go into um, at least the first four here is the fourth one's going to be assignment subleasing. The default provision and leases are, are vitally important, uh, not only for how you're going to interact with your tenant, but also how they're going to interact with you. So it's really important that you dig into this language and thoroughly understand it. And that brings up a good point on the due diligence list. You're going to want to have the current owner verify that the lease, there are no defaults in the lease on their side or on the tenant side. So you're going to want to make sure that there are no defaults because uh, you could end up buying a property. And if there's a default, it'll bring in a whole world of hurt because you could just jump into a lawsuit and actually have the tenant not paying rent immediately. No, that's absolutely right. The fourth one, which is really kind of the devil's in the details with this, this is so overlooked time and time again. And a lot of reasons why is these big national tenants that we interact with and negotiate with, they're really tough on on assignment and subleasing language. Basically, assignment is transferring the rights of that lease to someone else. And subleasing is the ability for the tenant to basically relet their space out to another user. And the reason why this is important, Michael stressed it early, it, we're really talking about things that it could impact the value of your lease. I'm gonna go through an example really quick of a national coffee operator. I'm not gonna use their name because I'm working with them on two sites. They have the ability to assign or sublease their lease without landlord consent to a parent, 
a subsidiary, affiliate, a successor entity through merger, or any entity that acquires more than 10 locations, and they can be under any trade name. So I, I want to stress this really important part. Basically, this huge brand can sell this space to a mom and pop operator that owns 10 locations, and it could be under Nick and Sam's Sandwich Shop. Now, this nationally recognized brand on the market would have a huge, huge value due to their brand. But if they assign this to someone else, basically transferring the lease over into someone else's name or different entity, that can really dampen our value. So it's really, really vital that you truly understand the assignment sublease language. And I can't tell you how many times I've come across this where these big nationals use their leverage in the negotiation and give themselves endless outs that could really devalue the property if in the event the tenant was not performing well here. So this, this is a big item that I think is commonly overlooked, but uh, is extremely vital. And I want to just point out, a lot of people ask, well, why would a, a landlord agree to this? And with a lot of net lease properties, they're built by what they call merchant developers. The developer has a relationship with the tenant. They've worked out the lease in advance and they just go out and build these in particular regions. Some developers develop for one tenant all over the country. They might be a you know, preferred developer for that particular tenant. Those developers don't care if a, a lot of these provisions aren't necessarily in the landlord's favor because they're just interested in getting the deal done and then selling it. And so what's, what we like to say, they're not eating their own cooking. So you really got to take a look at some of these things because that could come back and, and really bite you. And so that's where you need to have some legal experts that, or somebody that's familiar with leases to take a look at some of these things. So thank you very much, Jason, for that. No, no, absolutely. It's a very important one that's commonly overlooked and, and you hit the nail on the head with the merchant developers. That's, that's the key issue that we see time and time again. Uh, number five I wanted to mention is, and this one's pretty self-explanatory, is early termination clauses. A lot of times in leases, tenants will sign long-term leases, which is great and favorable for, for investors. But at the same time, maybe halfway through that initial term, they'll have the ability to terminate their lease if sales aren't strong above a certain threshold. So it's you know lenders, landlords, and uh, potential buyers all hate these early termination clauses. And every one of these tenants will fight to have one in there if possible. So really important that you understand that you will get devalued if you do have a early termination clause. Number six, another one that's fairly common in our industry, Michael, is renewal options. So I've uh, one of my favorite stories that, of yours, Michael, is that don't you have a, I want to say it was a Walgreens that was executed on, on what it looks like a lease was on a typewriter back in like the 50s. And they've exercised all their renewal options and they're still in your shopping center today. I love that story. Uh, before zip codes even. A lot of times we'll see tenants that uh, will sign a, what's called a 10-year primary term with maybe four to five, five-year additional renewal extensions for their leases. And where it gets interesting is, are these at a, what I'd call a fixed rent? So are they hey, look, in, in 10 years from now, my renewal option is going to be at $20 plus triple net, or is it going to be at a hypothetical fair market value that will be to be determined at a later date based on comps in the market? Tenants are always going to want to lock in a fixed rent. Landlords are always going to want a fair market value because nine times out of 10, fair market value is going to be in the advantage of the landlord 
plus we can use our skills of negotiation that we're used to on a daily basis. So really important that you get those aspects uh, ironed out and understood in your agreement. I can't tell you again how many times I've seen fixed flat rents 20 plus years and it's there's no rent upside for investors. So those are really critical to, to understand and see. The um, number seven is one of my personal favorites that I've had a lot of issues with, which is a go dark provision. A go dark provision allows the tenant to basically not operate in the space. Now, you may say, well, why does that make any sense? They're just throwing their money away on rent. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it makes sense for a store not to open because the sales are that anemic that their overhead is just crushing them. So they would prefer just to shut the store down, essentially, turn the lights off, go dark, and continue to pay rent to the landlord. You know, in a lot of ways, it's like, okay, great, we're getting our rent. If you were to put that property on the market, you know, you've got a lease in place, but not really an operating tenant. I mean, that's going to really hammer your value. And that would be a substantial value hit because of the risk that they could at any moment, either one, file bankruptcy or, you know, get into some legal dispute with them. And, and it's just, it's not ideal for anyone. So it's important that with the go dark provision, that landlords have what's called a recapture right. And that recapture right is the ability to maneuver them in the event that they were to go dark, potentially remarketing their space for lease to different operators. Or in the event, if you did find a replacement tenant, you could charge them a recapture fee. I've had to do this a few times in my career where uh, big nationals have gone dark. They've been dark for a year. I find a replacement tenant. And as soon as I find a replacement tenant, they have to pay me for all the costs to, to relet to that new tenant, which in a lot of ways could be favorable depending on where you're at in your hold period with that asset. So extremely important that you understand the nuance there with the go dark and recapture. Yeah. And I, I just want to interject with the non-continuous operation clause, which is what they, they also call it sometime. Jason brought up a good point. And what he brought up is a health ratio. And so a health ratio if a tenant is paying more than 10% in rent, typically that means that they don't have a really good health ratio. And so you take their sales to rent, and if their rent is over 10%, they're more than likely not doing enough sales or not doing enough service or not doing enough business at that location. And so, as Jason said, it doesn't make sense to keep it open because they have a lot more expenses in payroll, a lot more expenses in inventory, and a lot more expenses in, in other things versus just shutting it down and paying you the rent. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Uh, hit the nail on the head there. Great point, Michael. The number eight is co-tenancy clause. And Michael brought up a really interesting point earlier. A lot of times what happens is you have a parcel of land that's developed by a shopping center owner. All of this land is developed at one time, it's under one umbrella, one landlord. And potentially that landlord could sell these single tenant net lease properties to people like Michael and I. When that happens, there's, there's a tendency for that original landlord who developed the whole thing at one time to commit to a co-tenancy clause in the lease. For example, let's say Walmart was the big anchor tenant behind the McDonald's. McDonald's may want to put something in their lease, a co-tenancy clause that says, Mr. Landlord, if Walmart goes out of business or if your shopping center gets below 75% occupancy, 
I'm going to pay half rent. And if you don't get it above 75% occupancy or find a replacement anchor that we like, then we have the ability to terminate our lease. Not every single tenant net lease property has this provision in it. We generally find some of these on these really large master development uh, shopping centers or community centers. And so really important to kind of understand that nuance as well. And uh, if that's in your lease, some of this you cannot really have control over. So that, again, not the ideal investment for uh, operators like ourselves. And uh, that's an additional risk that you have to uh, formulate into your analysis. Number nine would be the radius restriction. Usually we don't get these in our leases, but I think it's really important to, to note it out if you have one or if you don't have one. This would restrict the tenant from operating or opening another business within a certain proximity or radius. If you've got a really nice pharmacy and there's a better location directly across the street that's coming available, you'd be shocked to know how many times some of those tenants have said, you know what, we're just going to open up across the street and we're going to go dark in our current space with that existing landlord because that location is so far superior that not only we're going to be able to make it up in sales, but it's going to well uncover our rent at that other location. So most of the big nationals won't commit to this, but it's something that's really important to understand and figure out if you have something like that in your document. And last but not least, number 10 is force majeure and everything around the hot topic of uh, 2020, which is the COVID language in leases now. What we're finding, and depends on the use, but what we're coming up against now um, because the insurance companies aren't coming in and fighting with business interruption insurance, they're placing tenants, they being tenants, are placing a lot of the onus on landlords to protect them in the event that there's a pandemic, additional riots that would happen, and if there's any restrictions in place. Now, this isn't happening on leases that were executed in 2019, 18, and so on. But what's important to keep an eye out on is when we have leases that come up for renewal, let's say in 2022, 2023, some of these nationals are going to want to bake in some protections. And so it's important to kind of have a strategy and understand what's happening kind of in the marketplace and what landlords are agreeing to and where we're kind of seeing the future of leases being crafted. But this is going to be a very hot topic that will be debated. I know Michael and I have different strategies depending on the different types of users. But the, one of the big reasons why we focus on the uses within our fund that we do is ultimately is to have the protection from events like a COVID or disintermediation from the internet. So a lot of our essential businesses have actually thrived during COVID. And that's ultimately what we're trying to find is groups that can really appease those everyday goods, auto service, you know, groups like a tractor supply that, that provide essential businesses and items for, for folks that are more rural communities and medical tenants, which is ultimately kind of, in my opinion, probably the best industries to be in during a situation like we're seeing today. And that, that sums up my list, guys. Hopefully I wasn't too painful. Uh, we'll definitely provide this to Adam and, and have everyone kind of take a look at it in the show notes. Well, thank you for that. I mean, that was really helpful with the lease part. And as we talked about the lease and the terms and the rent, that really is the most of the value in um, these triple net properties. So you're going to just want to make sure you look at all that stuff. You're also going to you know, want to make sure that you um, 
There's some other things in regards to financing and things like that, but we're going to bring somebody else on to specifically talk about financing in a future episode. They'll give us a much better rundown of that. I think for for that right now, that should cover everything. One, one last thing, there is a certificate of occupancy required. You're going to want to make sure that you have a copy of that. Yeah, <laughs> 100%, especially when you're doing uh, new developments, right, Michael? Right. And the most important things is that, that are going to happen during the due diligence period and you're going to want to have done prior to closing is the SNDAs and the estoppel certificate. So the estoppel certificate, the tenant signs and says, yes, these are the terms in my lease. This is the rent I'm paying and I don't owe any rent and I'm not owed anything from the landlord. And then the SNDA is something that you're a lender is going to want. So we could get into that a little bit more, but it's subordination and non-disturbance agreement. Your lender is going to want to see that. So those are two important parts of the the due diligence that need to be done too. But with that, Adam, I I think we filled this one up to the brim. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jason, especially. We will get a reference to that list that Jason just went through with us in the show notes so you guys can check it out or at least some way for you to, to get your hands on that. And who knows? I mean, Michael, maybe we'll bring Jason back on in the future to, uh, as I like to say, double click on a few of those topics and, and just get more into some of the details. Because as you mentioned, we, we definitely could have kept going today if we wanted to. Jason, one more time, thank you for investing your time with us here today. What's the single best way, if you had to give out one way for our listeners to follow up and get in touch with you, what would that one way be? Yeah, sure thing, Adam. Happy to help. Feel free to contact me at hello at libertyfund.io. Happy to connect with uh, fellow investors and help any way that we can. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, yes, ladies and gentlemen, today we were joined by Jason Ricks, the COO of Liberty Real Estate Fund. We had a great time learning here today. Michael, thank you for walking us through that too. Um, Any closing remarks on your side, Michael? Jason, as always, uh, gives me a masterclass in how to do leasing. The next time we have him on, we're going to have him Talk to us about place kicking for, you know, a division ah. one a football school. Football. Football, yeah. Go Cowboys. There we go. All right, guys. Well, thank you for tuning in to the Nothing But Net podcast, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. I'm your host, Adam Carswell, joined by Michael Flight, our co-host. Thank you for tuning in, and we will catch you in the next episode. Thank you once again for joining us here on Nothing But Net, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. If you enjoyed what you heard today, one last friendly reminder to like, share, subscribe, or leave a review for us. It really helps a ton with the show's visibility. For the Nothing But Net team, I'm Adam Carswell. Take care. Nothing But Net. The Nothing But Net podcast is not intended to provide legal, tax counsel, or accounting advice. Adam Carswell, Michael Flight, Concordia Realty Corporation, Liberty Real Estate Fund, LLC, and their affiliates do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice or the worthiness and promotion of any particular investment. This material has been prepared for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own tax, legal, and accounting advisors before engaging in any transaction or undertaking. 
We highly encourage individuals and investors to seek the counsel of a qualified attorney as well as seek the counsel of a tax professional or certified public accountant to determine if there are any potential tax liabilities or consequences as a result of anything contained herein. All listeners of this podcast or video should understand that there are no guarantees of any success, outcome, or profitability of any transaction or undertaking expressed or implied and will not be liable for any financial or other losses or damages incurred as a result of any undertaking. Go to nothingbutnet.us for a complete set of disclosures. Thank you.